I'm pleased to introduce our speaker now. Ted Reinstein has been on Boston television since 1995 as a reporter for Chronicle, America's longest running locally produced nightly news magazine. He's a regular contributor to the political roundtable show at his station, WCVB-TV. He writes a weekly opinion column and has won DuPont Columbia and Emmy Awards for his broadcast work. His first book was New England Notebook, One Reporter, Six States, Uncommon Stories. Tonight, he'll share fascinating stories from his newest book, Wicked Pissed, New England's Most Famous Feuds, Concord versus Lexington, Rudyard Kipling in my home state of Vermont, and of course, the Great Clam Debate. Here to bring to life the fights, spats, and arguments that have in many ways shaped our region, Please join me in warmly welcoming Ted Reinstein. Thank you. Thank you very much, Hannah. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, thank you all for coming out tonight, braving the gale force winds, coming up Beacon Hill. Why does the wind always seem worse either on Beacon Hill or down in the canyon in and around the Hancock Tower, right? Um, so thank you all for coming out on a, on a chilly early January night, I appreciate it. Um, this, is, this is quite a room to speak in, I have to say. Um, I speak in a lot of public libraries, which are wonderful. I'm a passionate supporter of public libraries, but this is speaking in a New England institution, you know, so this is wonderful, so thank you. Uh, as Hannah said, I'm gonna speak tonight about my, uh, my second book, uh, Wicked Pissed, and um, Given the time constraints, I normally devote about an hour to the central feud I'm going to share with you tonight, which is like the featured feud. Uh, but I'm going to abbreviate it a little bit tonight so we can work this all in in the next 45 minutes. Um, but I'll start out just by sharing. I always like to say that, you know, as I began researching feuds in general, um, it became very clear very quickly that feuds are fascinating. People love feuds. They love, look at the queen and, uh, you know, right, last week and the big sit down and the intervention at Buckingham Palace. I mean, it's a feud. It's a feud. Um, but there's one big, major, major exception, asterisk, when it comes to that, that people, except if it's yours. <laughs> if it's your headache, if it's your headache, if it's your agita, uh, it is not as interesting. Uh, as it is to everybody, everybody else. Now, I always like to point out, too, that the very first feud that we know of that is, that is actually something that is part of our spoken and written history uh, was uh, in the Bible, the very first feud. And the very first feud was a family feud. Um, and I've always taken some small solace in seeing that the very first family was uh, had its own share of dysfunction, not just mine. So uh, there's nothing new about that. And New England, of course, I always like to point out, is home to the, the granddaddy or grandmommy of family feuds, which, of course, is the dueling demulises. Uh, the now, the most, you know, you, you can say the Hatfields and the McCoys, but the Hatfields and the McCoys had a higher body count. That's true. But um, the Hatfield and the McCoys is nothing in terms of the money that has been spent the 35, now $38 million in counting over three decades. So 
that's a heck of a few. So let me skip ahead a little bit. And I, as I said, I'm just going to, you know, sort of edit some of what I, I talk about. Um, America founded in a feud. Our nation founded in a feud. Uh, a war, but then you, you know, I always like to point out, you don't get a bigger feud than an actual shooting war with a body count. Uh, that's a real feud. Uh, and of course, it starts on, you know, April 18th, April 19th, on Lexington Green, where the shot heard around the world is fired. And then, of course, the British move on to the Old North Bridge, where their day begins to go downhill very quickly. Um, but, you know, it's always struck me as, as, as interesting that how many of you caught this exhibit at the Buckman Tavern about four or five years ago in Lexington. It was a wonderful exhibit because it, it captures a few that I, I knew about and that I include in the book that to this day, you know, I mean, we would say today that uh, the, the country that we fought against, Great Britain, right, England, um, is today, um, or at least it has been, I mean, things have been a little bit fluid in the last few years, but you would say traditionally, let's put it that way, that uh, England was our closest ally and friend in the world, and yet, you know who's still fighting the American Revolution? Not us and Great Britain, but Concord and Lexington. Still battling over, really, who really should get the name birthplace of American liberty? You know, Lexington, where the first shots were fired, or Concord, where the actual first battle happened, where shots were returned. Uh, yes, they are still fighting it today, and this wonderful exhibit caught that. Another very local, I love this because often I speak far from home, uh, all over New England, but tonight we are literally less than a mile from this feud that is still going on. Now, you may not think of it as a feud that is ongoing, but it most certainly, it most certainly is. And, of course, it's an event that happens just a few months after Concord and Lexington, where, you know, the, the, the revolutionaries could be said to have lost the battle that day, but have begun to won the war, because within the next year, the British evacuated Boston, largely because of some of what happened on that day, the Battle of Bunker Hill. Now, how many of you are, are, are local to this area? Well, most of you. So you know, for instance, in a way that perhaps an audience in, I don't know, Fort Wayne, Indiana, might not know immediately without thinking about it or Googling it on their phone, um, that the Battle of Bunker Hill was not fought on Bunker Hill. It was fought on... Thank you. I knew there would be resounding echo here tonight. And it would be very embarrassing if there wasn't. Uh, yes, it was fought on Breed's Hill. It was fought on Breed's Hill. And you know, it has been considered, long considered, one of the greatest historical inaccuracies uh, in American history, that that battle got misnamed within 24 hours, actually, of the actual battle. It was being misnamed. And, um, you know, no, uh, no, no lesser a wonderful, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the wonderful historian and author Nathaniel Philbrick, right? Wrote a wonderful book about the Pilgrim's First Winter in Plymouth. And he wrote, as you may know, about 10 years ago, a wonderful definitive history of the Battle of Bunker Hill, in which, in which, he referred to the misnaming of Bunker Hill as, quote, the most egregious historical inaccuracy in American history. Know what he called his book? <laughs> Thereby perpetuating the most egregious historical inaccuracy in American history. But you know, it's funny. So even though they don't deserve it, even though they didn't earn it, even though it's not true, 13, 14 generations now of, uh, of bunkers get 
the monument named after them, the guided frigate named after them, the community college named after them, cities and towns across America named after them. You want crazy, drag strip in Indiana named after them. <laughs> you want crazier, chili sauce, you, you name it. You know, you know. But this is what the breeds get. And I'm going to show you how the state actually rubs salt in what they thought was a little salve to the wound. They just opened it further. So in the 1930s, the breed family prevailed on the state legislature to install this plaque inside the Bunker Hill Monument, right? So look what the plaque says. Breeds Hill, site of the battle of Bunker Hill. <laughs> you can't make it up. You can't make it up. And 13 generations later, uh, Jed Breed, who lives in Cambridge, explained to me that he feels honor-bound still to this day. If he's out and about and he hears somebody you know, at a restaurant or wherever, um, you know, talking about the Battle of Bunker Hill, he feels honor-bound to, um, to correct them. <laughs> yeah, that's dangerous business, depending on where you are. So let me jump ahead now to our featured feud, which has to do with first flight. This is without any question my favorite feud that I found out about. And I say, there were some feuds like Concord and Lexington that I knew about. I did not know about this feud. And instantly it became, well it actually became the reason to write the book. Then I found other feuds and added things that I knew about, but I did not know about this feud. I did not know about this feud. And it may be that many of you don't know about it either. So as I said, it involves first flight. So you are looking at what has been called the most reproduced photograph in human history. The early morning hours of December 17th, 1903, Orville Wright at the controls of the Wright Flyer, at the base of Kill Devil Hill, Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, his brother Wilbur, his older brother Wilbur, running alongside, and we have first flight. The dawn of the airplane and the age of flight. And it made the Wright brothers justly famous, no question about it. Here they are pictured. Who knew that Orville Wright was such a natty dresser? Right? Look at those socks. Uh, here they are pictured on the home, the porch of their home in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, six years later, having toured Europe, having demonstrated their airplane, the Wright Flyer, and they became justly celebrated as the, uh, the inventors of the airplane and the creators of first flight. All well and good, but... Anybody ever seen this thing before? Yeah, some? Mm -hmm. So what if I told you that this strange-looking contraption rose into the air and created first flight a full two years before the Wright brothers. And that this gentleman was at the controls may actually deserve credit for first flight and inventing the airplane. Gustav Whitehead, born Gustav Weisskopf in Bavaria, Leuterschausen, Germany, Bavaria. Uh, he emigrated to the United States in and around 1900, and actually, local connection. His first job here in the States was only miles from here, in Milton, at the Great Blue Hill Weather Observatory, where he designed weather balloons. He was known even as a child, as the bird. Of course, being referred to as the bird in the late latter years of the 19th century did not mean airplanes, because they hadn't been invented yet, but it did mean he was obsessed with creating balloons that could lift people off the ground, kites big enough to lift someone off the ground, and the early stages of gliders that led to the airplane that he created. Um, in 1903, 1901, I'm sorry, in 1901, he had moved to Bridgeport, Connecticut, 
where in the summer of 1901, he was at work, and what is behind him there, next to him there, it was his 21st flying machine. His 21st, number 21. He was at work on it, and there he is with his crew. I use the word crew a little bit loosely. Uh, Gustav Whitehead, who's right there, is the only engineer in the bunch. He was a trained engineer, an engine builder, and the others were all at work with him. In front of him is an engine, which is going to prove crucial in doing what he very well may have done. So you may be wondering, how come I've never heard of him? I had never heard of him. Maybe some of you had. When I started researching about five years ago, I'd never heard, never heard of this guy, never heard of this feud. So, you know, journalism has sometimes been called, as you may know, the, uh, the first draft of history. I heard that old, that old saying. You're looking at the first draft. So this is a contemporaneous newspaper account that is uh, Whitehead having said to a reporter that uh, his machine will surely fly when he uh, tests it out. So this is to point out that his contemporaries knew all about him. And what's fascinating about this whole period of first flight, of which Whitehead was a part, and obviously the Wright brothers were too, is that it teaches us, and I know in a room with this audience tonight, I know all of you love history, uh, and it really points up the fact that we don't know much about him today, or I'm sure for many of you never heard of him. It points up how we learn about history, right? That contemporaries to a historical event know all about it, know all about it. And as time recedes, we know less and less. A hundred years later, only historians, only those who are willing to put in the time to really research. Obviously, the digital age has made it much easier. You can Google now anything that used to take coming to a place like the Boston Athenaeum to find out more about someone like Gustav Whitehead. But his contemporaries, the point I'm making, knew all about him. Because first flight did not just happen. It didn't happen as a result. You know, I often say that, you know, we, we think of the Wright brothers. If you think about your experience in school learning about the Wright brothers, at least when I do, um, you know, I think basically it's one of those things where you learn that, you know, Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone in Boston and, and, and the Wright brothers invented the airplane in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, and it's just, it's a given. But as time goes on, unless you are a historian, unless you do the research, we lose all the context that's all around it. They weren't alone. They weren't alone. You know, we kind of learned that the Wright brothers are somewhat, you know, peculiar uh, brother, pair of brothers. Uh, you know, they had a wonderful bicycle building business in Dayton, Ohio, and for about a decade, they went back and forth from Dayton to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, where they had a little cabin in the dunes, and they were continuously testing what they hoped would be a plane that would fly, and then magically, or so it would seem, on December 17th, 1903, 10.38 in the morning, they flew. I call it the myth of immaculate aviation. Because <laughs> it didn't just happen. And they weren't alone. There were almost a dozen early aviation pioneers. They were racing. And in that respect, I always say it's more like the space race, right? Of the late 50s and the 60s that the US did not win. <laughs> we were not first in space. So it was more like the space race. There were people who were jockeying. They were, the Wright brothers knew all about Gustav Whitehead. There are 
the, I, it will never be. There, there is no documentary evidence of any kind. But there has long been rumors, stories, legends, that the Wright brothers visited incognito Bridgeport, Connecticut in 1902. We'll never know. But the point is, everybody knew what everybody was doing. They knew what Sam Langley was up to. Everybody knew what everybody was doing. Everybody was looking for a qualitative technological edge, right? Everybody was looking for something that would give them the inside track. The irony is, Gustav Whitehead actually found it. So there's an in-depth magazine piece, once again. So his contemporaries were reading all about, because people couldn't get enough of this, of this race to create first flight. Front cover, American inventor, the popular mechanics of its time. Huge distribution for its time. Did not have a digital version, but huge distribution for its time. So, August 14th, 1901. That's the date that there are many now who say should be emblazoned like December 17th, 1903. This is the day that Gustav Whitehead may very well have made history. He did everything he could do, as we're going to find out to make sure that we didn't know. There were reasons for that, which we'll share. But this was the day. This was the day. And he's pictured in front of his, his airplane, and he's pictured with his engine there. And I said people were jockeying for a qualitative edge, right? That was the edge. So, you know, first flight, for first flight to happen, there were four elements that were necessary. Three of them had already been achieved with gliders. A flight had to be sustained, it had to be piloted, and it had to be controlled. The fourth was what would be necessary for first flight, power. It had to be fueled, right? So the Wright brothers were wonderful engine builders, ingenious. Again, I always say, I can't stress enough. It's, this story takes nothing away from the Wright brothers. Everything that we know about aviation today, the way that planes operate by and large today, all direct, directly connect to the Wright brothers. However, they weren't engine builders. They were bicycle builders. The Wright Flyer is a genius of lightweight metal frame construction. But they had to outsource the most important part, the power part, to create first flight. They had to outsource that to someone else to build them an engine. Gustav Whitehead didn't have to. He built it himself because he was an engine builder. Not only that, he knew he had to come up with an engine that would be incredibly light, be able to extract a lot of power from a very limited light source of fuel. And he settled on a fuel source that no one had tried before, the chemical acetylene, not used much anymore. Burns with a very intense burn, almost like magnesium. You know, if you light magnesium, it, you, it's almost that kind of thing. So it, it's difficult to control, but it gives you a very intense short burst of power. And he built this incredibly light two-stroke engine, and he used that for number 21, and he was so sure that he could do this on August 14th, 1901, they would have one shot. Why? Because they couldn't afford a second. Unlike the Wright brothers, who, again, take nothing away from them, they had a wonderful business, very successful, and they had plenty of money which made it possible to put someone else in control of the business with all their trips to Kitty Hawk. Gustav Whitehead was penniless, actually died penniless 
So he and his crew worked odd jobs. Actually, the whole process of coming up with number 21, just to be able to afford each additional component. And they knew they'd have no second crack at this. They knew they'd have no second crack. So August 14th, 1901, let me set the scene for you. They have just spent a week rolling with oxen and a roller a dirt road, about two-thirds of a mile, a dirt road just over the Bridgeport line in Fairfield to act as a crude runway. Why? Another edge Whitehead had. So the Wright brothers used gravity, as you may recall, to get into the air. That's why they ran a steel track down a steep hill on a sand dune. Later on, back in Ohio, they actually had a, a crude catapult get them in the air. Whitehead didn't need that. He had wheels. He was going to taxi and take off just like a 747 would today. So there were wheels under there. They had spent a week rolling out this road to act as a crude runway. It's about 5 o'clock in the morning when they have dragged number 21 to the takeoff spot. They fuel up. They power up. It's dark. The sun won't rise till about 5.33 on August 14th, 1901. That's a crucial fact, as you'll see. They power up. They remove a couple of boulders that are acting as crude chocks in front of the wheels. Whitehead taxis for about 85 feet, and he's airborne. He banks a northwest turn, northeast turn, over Long Island Sound. It was ingenious what they did. You know, obviously there were no lights on the plane, and they took off in darkness. But they planned it so that the rising sun would light their way. It would act as the landing light. They turned into the sun, flew a short distance over Long Island Sound, approached the coast of Bridgeport. That's uh, not a photograph, uh, but uh, it is an artist's rendering of what number 21 might have looked like as it approached the Bridgeport coast, and he landed. So the question is, did he fly first? Well, let's compare and contrast. So the Wright brothers flew for about 15, 20 seconds. They flew for about 120 feet, and they flew at a height of six, eight feet. So basically the height today of a, a standout NBA center, give or take, right? Whitehead flew for almost half an hour. He flew for over half a mile, and he flew at a height of 50 feet, so the height of about a three-story building in Bridgeport at that time. So how come if the Wright brothers of Kitty Hawk is the most reproduced photograph in history, and if Whitehead flew first, this is not the most reproduced photograph in history. The key is what he's holding in his arm, not his engine, which is in front of him. He did seem to like that get, get that engine into every photograph. I don't know if it was in every family photograph. It might have been. He's very proud of it. Um, he's holding his first daughter, Rose. Gustav Whitehead was a poor German immigrant. He spoke no English. He was a poor German immigrant at a time of rising, sometimes virulently, anti-German sentiment in America. Within six years of this photograph being taken, the world would be at war, and Germany would be at war with the United States. So Gustav Whitehead was not really crazy about parading around any more than he had to as a German-speaking alien. And I use that term advisedly because he also had what we would call today uncertain immigration status. So he was very afraid 
from everything that we've read, live daily in fear that somehow, somehow, he had gone wrong somewhere with some papers he should have filled out and that at any moment he could be deported and separated from his family. So he did, he had to balance. It must have been for him a really incredibly difficult balance that he was juggling because he had spent his entire life imagining that he would fly. And now that he actually had a machine that he felt certain would do it, he felt that he couldn't take the risk of attracting attention to himself. So he did everything he could do to not attract attention. And yet he was determined to try this plane and fly. So they took off in the dark. They took off at a time of day when they expected there to be very, very little chance of anybody seeing. Despite, despite the precautions they took, it didn't work. But it worked well enough. It worked well enough. So he never flew again. He turned to building engine components for various other Mind you, this is now a period of the burgeoning airplane industry after the Wright brothers. And here he is holding a part that he built for Curtis Air, Curtis Aviation. He also built a prototype for a helicopter before he died. And he died in 1927, penniless and completely unknown. So, thank you and good night. No. Uh, what's interesting, what's interesting is that, you know, if you were talking just about the Whitehead story, this is where it ends. This is where it ends. But here's what's fascinating about it. The epilogue, which I will share with you in abbreviated form now, but the epilogue to this story is in some ways more fascinating than the story of possible first flight itself. Because what happens now, and the reason why more people know about it today, the reason why there is, I mean, I mentioned this as part of a book. There is an entire book two years ago, came out by John Brown, about uh, there is a documentary um, that is being floated is that at e almost eerie regular intervals, basically every decade, every two decades, since he died, a group of people came along, each of whom, they didn't know each other at first, but each of them, by accident, found out about the Whitehead saga story and found something resonated in a way that they wanted to research it and did. And each of them, as you'll see, had a particular skill set, right, that allowed them to advance what we know about the story. And the first person who did that is an extraordinary woman, light years ahead of her time. Light years ahead of her time, Stella Randolph. She was, in the 19, by the 1930s, she was an educator, she was an attorney, she was a journalist, way ahead of her time. And she became interested in the Whitehead story, and she researched, but she realized there was an element about the Whitehead story that had never been told. This is in the, about, about 1940. She realized there was an element that had never been told. She also realized that if it wasn't told now, in other words, if the research was not done now, no one would ever be able to research it again, because the people who could document what she was after were dying out. So I told you that Whitehead did everything he could to make sure there were no eyewitnesses. But you know, by the time he was landing, the sun was rising. And there were people out and about. And it turns out there were more than 20 eyewitnesses. 
But Stella Randolph realized that if we don't go and depose them, so she put her attorney hat on along with her journalist hat, and she wanted to get legal, signed legal depositions. She wanted to get signed legal eyewitness testimony from some of these eyewitnesses, and she did. And those testimonials became the, first, the basis for the first two books written about Gustav Whitehead, both by Stella Randolph, and now for the first time in the 1940s, people outside of Connecticut have now heard about Gustav Whitehead. And Connecticut is now overnight fielding queries from journalists, from historians, from researchers. What, 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 what are you sitting on up there, Connecticut? What have you got? What, are you, what, what kind of secrets are you keeping up? What, are, what is this all about? People want to know who can they talk to, who can they interview, who's around, who's still alive, what do you got? And Connecticut has all kinds of stuff at that time. They have documentary evidence. They have physical evidence, they have notes, they have photographs, they have eyewitnesses. What the state of Connecticut realizes they don't have is the expertise to do what should have been done 20 years earlier, to perform an expert forensics aviation investigation. You know, what the NTSB would come in and do now. So they ask the most prominent institution in America if they could do this forensics investigation. And they were stunned that the answer was no. The Smithsonian Institution said no. Which seems to strike some of you as odd. It certainly struck everybody in Connecticut as odd. Why would the most preeminent institution in America that is concerned with both American history and specifically an entire wing devoted to aviation, because in the 1940s they were less than 30 years away. They already had the vision for an air and space museum. And someone comes to them and says there is a potentially valid counterclaim to first flight and you don't want to investigate it? And they said no. So the question is why would that be? Connecticut, many were vitally concerned with why that would be. Well, we come back again to the Wright Flyer. It haunted Gustav Whitehead when he was alive and it haunts his story in death. So this is a photograph from the day that the Wright Flyer was unveiled to the public at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. Having been bequeathed in 1948 to the Smithsonian by the heirs of Wilbur and Orville Wright, their descendants. So now the, the Smithsonian has made it the centerpiece of what they hope in time will become an air and space museum. And there is our friend Stella Randolph with the next person who comes along, who comes along to advance the story in his way. She is doing it in her way. That is William O'Dwyer. Bill O'Dwyer is a, was a retired Air Force colonel. He was vitally concerned with, with the Whitehead story from the standpoint of aviation, purely could it have flown? Because his feeling was, you know what, if we had some way of finding out that it wasn't airworthy, that it probably couldn't have flown, what are we getting into this, you know, long spitting match with the Smithsonian over? Fine. That was his interest. Stella Randolph, who he's pictured with there, he had teamed up with, they were at work on a book. They were at work on a book about Gustav Whitehead. There they are together, 
at the Whitehead Museum in Leuterschausen, Germany, being shown around by the curator. But at the same time, another friend of the Whitehead story and a native son of Connecticut will do something that will cause Bill O'Dwyer and Stella Randolph to pivot from the, the book they had planned to a different book. So you may know that, anybody know who this is? Lowell Weicker. Sat on the Watergate impeachment committee. That resonates tonight. Um, he sat on the Senate Select Committee uh, on impeachment. Um, he was a former attorney general from Connecticut. He was a former governor and former senator, Republican senator. He grew up, Weicker grew up, essentially, talk about being wicked pissed. Weicker grew up, he would later say, pissed every day at the Smithsonian for refusing to investigate the Whitehead story. But there was nothing he could do about it. Every time he would approach Smithsonian officials about carrying out this investigation, he was told that there is no interest, there is no belief here that the flight happened. And when Whitehead would say, but we have all kinds of evidence, I will, sh I will bring it to you in my car today, the answer was still no. And it confounded him. He wanted to look through their records. He wanted to look through. They told him those are private papers. Those are private papers per order of the Wright family. But he continually kept hearing something that made him drive this argument with the Smithsonian ever further, which was this. All through the 1960s, 1970s, Lowell Weicker kept hearing from people. I always think it's sort of, it's sort of the same thing. Remember Deep Throat and, the, and, and, uh, um, and the, the underground parking garage, right, and where they were getting the, the pot would be overturned, blah, right? So he keeps hearing from people. They'll sidle up to him, he would say, at parties and cocktail parties, and they would say, you know, Bill, I know you really, really would love to know why the Smithsonian won't investigate the Whitehead. What you got to do is somehow find a way to see the secret agreement they signed with the Wright family, and you didn't hear it from me. And they'd be gone. So it made him feel if he could just see this agreement with the family. And in 1978, you know, who says Congress never does anything? Maybe lately. But in 1978, in 1978, Congress passed a piece of legislation that I think really, from a standpoint of freedom, from a standpoint of transparency in government, really deserves a place right up alongside the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, all right, the Suffrage Act, because in 1978, Congress passed the Freedom of Information Act. And guess what? Overnight, the Smithsonian, as a taxpayer-supported institution, had no such thing as private papers. And Weicker marched himself over at 8 o'clock in the morning and said, I am here to look at the agreement you signed with the Wright family, and I'll take my coffee with two sugars. And he was shown the agreement because they could not refuse. And as a former prosecutor, he looked through it. So he's going through it, through it. And he got to the last page and the last clause, and he knew exactly what people had been talking about. Because there, in the last clause of the agreement, amidst all kinds of boilerplate, was a clause that said, basically verbatim, in taking possession of the right flyer, the Smithsonian is forbidden and hereby enjoined from ever 
acknowledging anyone but the Wright brothers as, quote, first in flight. To do so otherwise will mean repossession by the Wright family of the Wright flyer. So immediately, Stella Randolph and Bill O'Dwyer pivoted on their book project and came out with a book in 1978, talk about writing fast, History by Contract, in which they laid out the premise that there is a rival claim to first flight in America and the one institution in America that is supported by your taxpayer dollars who can settle this refuses to investigate it. Why? Because they have a conflict of interest the size of an airplane hangar. <laughs> well, this wasn't a real good time for the Smithsonian to be embroiled in a huge controversy because now we're in the future, where we were in that day in 1948 when they were talking about opening the Air and Space Museum. Now they have. You know what's the centerpiece of the Air and Space Museum? The Wright Flyer. So it now falls to the end. They can't ignore it. They can't not comment about this controversy. So they do comment. It was not a secret. <laughs> Here's what the problem was, they said. There was no secret. We would have been happy to share. Nobody asked us. <laughs> what do you want from us? And it fell to, for, for Tom Crouch, it fell to Tom Crouch to add that, by the way, even though we haven't looked at any evidence and haven't carried out an investigation, we still don't think it happened. Now, Tom Crouch, take nothing away from Tom Crouch. I interviewed Tom Crouch twice in the process of, of writing the book. Brilliant, brilliant aviation historian, expert, curator emeritus of the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum today, knows everything there is to know about aviation history in America. Most folks in Connecticut are not crazy about Tom Crouch. Um, the first reason they're not too crazy about Tom Crouch is that like the Wright brothers, um, because he's the guy, you know, he was the face of refusing to investigate the Whitehead story. Um, like the Wright brothers, Tom Crouch is a native of Dayton, Ohio. No, no, well, I disagree, but I disagree. I disagree with people who have a problem with that because you don't pick where, you, you don't pick where you're born. It's not his fault. It doesn't mean that because he's born in Dayton, Ohio, he could not perform a dispassionate, objective investigation. Connecticut's other problem with Tom Crouch, I do agree with. He's the first official biographer of the Wright brothers. That's a little, yeah, that's a little bit bigger problem. But now in our story, we're up to 1985, it's still no dice from the, from the Smithsonian in terms of investigating. So it comes to the fourth person. Andy Koch, who comes along, goes to a talk being given, actually, by Bill O'Dwyer in Hartford, Connecticut in 1985, and he attends the talk. Andy Koch is an amazing guy, still teaching school today in Fairfield, Connecticut at 73. Uh, I don't know how he does that, but he does it. Um, he is, was a world-class adventurer, master craftsman. Goes to a talk in 1985 in Hartford and goes up to Bill O'Dwyer afterward and he says, listen, I know, Colonel, that your interest in the Whitehead saga is whether or not number 21 could have flown. I'm going to build a model, an authentic replica. I'd love to have you work with me and I'm going to build this replica and we can fly it and it will answer your question that you've had for years. I've always wondered if at that moment Bill O'Dwyer was kind of looking for 
the guys with the white coats, um, because I think he thought this was crazy talk. But he didn't know Andy Koch. He did know Andy Koch. Andy Koch did go ahead on his project. He's a scientist. And he used, he, he was very, very deliberate about his approach and his plan and his process. He built first a 3-8 scale replica, which you see here. He convened a panel of 12, a dozen world-class aviation experts. Here he is with the head of Sikorsky Aviation. And his, his decision was, unless there was unanimous consensus that he should go ahead and build a full-scale replica, he wouldn't do it. And it was unanimous. And he built it. And he flew it. Now, the thing about this replica, again, um, talking about advantages or, or, or technological edges that Whitehead came up with that even the Wright brothers didn't have on the Wright Flyer. So Andy Koch was not a pilot. So he wanted to fly the plane. He himself could not fly it. Because, uh, well, I mean, for that matter, Gustav Whitehead wasn't a pilot either. But the point was, in 1901, the state of Connecticut didn't require a pilot's license. Because there was no such thing as a pilot. But in 1985, it does require a pilot's license. So Andy Koch has to, he's already spent thousands and thousands of dollars. He's not going to get a pilot's license. So he, he, he contacts a friend of his, who is someone I think, I think you will know, uh, and who is a fam was a famous actor, uh, the late Cliff Robertson. Starred in the film Charlie, starred as JFK. Talk about a Boston connection, right? In PT 109. Uh, and commercial pilot. So Andy called him up. He said, Cliff, I got a crazy idea. Cliff, oh my God, I love it. So he came to Bridgeport. And so I asked Andy, when I, when I interviewed Andy on the phone, I said, look, there's so much about the Whitehead story we'll never know. It's unknowable. I said, starting... I said, I know that this was a painstaking, and it was. This, when I tell you that this was a painstakingly authentic replica, I mean down to the last tiny bolt, rivet, screw, and I mean that literally. There was not a single piece of fabric or metal or material that was in that replica that was not commercially available in 1901. So I said to Andy, I said, listen, you don't have to sell me on how authentic the replica was. But I said, listen, you flew, and I know how long you flew, and it's incredible. But I said, there's stuff that's unknowable. I said, for instance, we will never know. I knew this at that point from researching, but I said, you know, the most important metric, the most important piece of data from a forensics investigation, first of all, is what the wind is doing. First, eliminate the wind, they say. Right? We'll never know. We'll never know what the wind was doing on August 14th, 1901. So I said... You know, how, and he cut me off, and he said, listen, it's not my first time talking about the flight. I said, no, I know. I said, no, no, let me just, let me tell you something. He said, all I say is this. And then he told me. He said, when Cliff was taxiing. So they had created, they had created almost a mile long dirt road on a tarmac, on the tarmac at Bridgeport Airport. So there's no advantage. They weren't going to take off on the tarmac. They had loaded the exact same amount of fuel into the exact same two-stroke engine. And he said when Cliff started taxiing, he turned to adjust the tiller. So here's the qualitative edge. So you'll notice that this strange-looking da Vinci half-boat, half-plane kind of thing has a mast in the middle. The tiller operated the mast. The mast operated something that the right flyer didn't have. So 
on that mast, there were guide wires that went out to every single segment along the wings. Every single segment along the wings was controllable independently through those guide wires. So what Whitehead had created, so again, take nothing away from the rights. The right flyer was controllable, which was a component, right, an element needed for first flight. It was controllable, not in the way number 21. Because number 21 was controllable in virtually every dimension in space. Why? Because those little guide wires were operating really the invention and the forerunner of the aileron, wing flaps, the most important part of an airplane today. So Andy Carson's telling me, he says, you know, when, when, when Cliff reached for the tiller, his watch popped off. One ordinary watch, right? It had an altimeter on it. The altimeter was crucial to knowing whether or not they reached 50 feet. But he realized, as he's fumbling around for it on the, on the floor of the fuselage, the only thing worse than not having the watch would be having this thing crack up on the infield. So he said he brought himself back into his upright position, and he was already 20 feet off the ground. So he had the same amount of fuel in the engine, but he realized after 30 minutes, which was Whitehead's flight, that he still had half a tank of fuel, which tells us that Whitehead probably had adverse wind conditions. He probably had headwinds when he flew on August 14th. 1901. That's what the experts say this tells us. So he used up the rest of the fuel and he flew for almost an hour. At a height of 50 feet, he landed back in Bridgeport. There's Cliff Robertson. <laughs> Little victory lap across the tarmac. And now for the first time, for the first time in 1987, see, you should have known about it. It was on 60 Minutes. <laughs> for the first time in 1987, the Whitehead story went truly national in America. And it was the subject of two, later two, 60 Minutes. And now the very last person I'll close out with because he's the most important person to advance the Whitehead story, John Brown. John Brown growing up had never heard of Gustav Whitehead. He may never have heard of Connecticut for all I know, but he has a good excuse. He grew up in Australia. Uh, aviation investigator, aviation researcher, aviation historian, and in 19... I'm sorry, 2000, year 2000, in what I call the most stunning piece of irony in this whole saga, John Brown was hired to come over to the United States and produce a series of television specials about the history of American aviation. Know who hired him? The Smithsonian. Tom Crouch, who will tell you to this day, probably the worst hire I ever made. Little did he know. So, so, so John Brown comes over in September 2000, and he meets with Tom Crouch, and they're talking about these specials and blah, blah, blah. And just as they're leaving, John Brown says to Tom Crouch, Tom, let me ask you something. And he's probably putting on his jacket. He's, he wanted to be very casual about it. And he said, uh, what do you know about that? Oh, what's, it? what's that name? Um, uh, Gustav Whitehead. And Tom Crouch said, you know he didn't fly. Right? He didn't fly. That was all John Brown had to hear. Detective, investigator, just heard what he would call a gold-plated tell. It's a tell. He thought, I've just heard a tell. I didn't ask if you think he flew. That's like saying, do you have the time? He didn't fly. You know, it's like, what? <laughs> so John Brown heard what he wanted to hear, checked out of his hotel in Washington, went up to Bridgeport, Connecticut, and in 48 hours, 
had found something the state of Connecticut had long despaired no longer existed, a contemporaneous newspaper account, the next day's Bridgeport Post, local boy flies over Long Island Sound. He went from there to Lordeshausen, Germany, where he rummaged around in the attic of the Whitehead Museum and he found this. Now bear with me for a minute, because this, this takes a little bit of, follow this with me, right? So this is the photograph that John Brown is looking at in the attic of the Whitehead Museum, right? His eye is drawn to a photograph within the photograph. So this is a photograph of the Aero Club of America exhibit in Cincinnati in 1906. And he's looking at that thing on the wall. Looks like nothing. He says to the, the, the guy from the museum, I, I have, do you have a magnifying glass? I need something to magnify that. Guy brings him back. He said, oh, it's not enough. Um, he said, I need, to, I need to enlarge this image. The guy said, what, what do you want me to do? So they went over to the local police department. They couldn't help him, but they said, you know what? Let us run you over to the, the equivalent of the German FBI. They're, they have a field office. They were able to enlarge the photograph 34 times, and then he was looking at this. It still looks like nothing, but not to John Brown. John Brown has an extraordinary photographic memory. And when he looked at that, it put him in mind of page 37 in Stella Randolph's second book. I'm still not here, if that's for me. Uh, put him in mind of number 27 of Stella Randolph's second book, in which there was an eyewitness testimonial of a bank clerk whose job it was on the morning of August 14th 1901 to open up the bank building in downtown Bridgeport. He said in his testimony that he opened up the bank about 535, he thought, between 530, 535. The sun was up full at 533. He said as he was unlocking the front doors, he became so addled by the sound of something in the air that he dropped his keys. And when he looked up, he said he saw on the roof of the third-story building directly across the street from the bank what looked like a man with a box camera on a tripod. We do not know the provenance of that photograph. We'll never know. And we don't know for sure what that is. John Brown does not use it as the most pervasive piece of evidence that he has, but he has long felt that we might be looking at the only known photograph of Whitehead's number 21 coming to rest at what was a vacant lot diagonally across from that building. So John Brown returned, began speaking all over America, raising the story of Whitehead even more, and in 2013, there was a meeting that he felt he had to go to, even though he wasn't invited. Because in 2013, in March, in Frankfurt, Germany, the Frankfurt Air Show, the editors of Jane's All the World's Aircraft, often called the Bible of World Aviation, were meeting. And he sent them a message and he said, I'd like to have a few minutes with you because I have some material you might be interested in about a potential rival claim to first flight. So they penciled them in for 20 minutes. An hour and a half later, the meeting broke up. And in their centennial edition in June 2013, the beginning of June 2013, the editors of Jane's added a whole page message from the editors in which they said, it is now the opinion of Jane's that first flight occurred not on December 17th, 1903, but on August 14th, 1901. That was all Connecticut had to hear. So for a hundred years, basically, they have been told by the Smithsonian, by North Carolina, by Dayton, Ohio, 
that basically get lost. And in June 2013, June 24, the Connecticut State Assembly, without a single dissenting vote, tried doing that with any piece of legislation today, passed a piece of legislation which today makes Connecticut the only state in America that recognizes someone other than the Wright brothers, officially, as first in flight. So as a finish, there's the question. There's the question. Should what you've heard tonight, should what we now know about Gustav Whitehead, change how we look at first flight? How many of you think it should change? How many of you think it should change? How many of you think it shouldn't change? I'll tell you why. I will say this. My no vote comes with a huge neon flashing asterisk. Because here's the thing. The Wright brothers were brilliant men. They knew, they knew that even by 1903, that the coin of the realm when it came to incontrovertible, unarguable evidence was a photograph, right? They had three separate photographers ranged around the dunes that day. Only one of them ironically got a picture, but that was all they needed. That was all they needed. Gustav Whitehead may have been a poor German immigrant who spoke no English. He was no dummy. He knew, he knew that a photograph would be needed. That was the sacrifice I personally believe he made to fly. I believe that was the sacrifice he made to fly. So if you go to Kill Devil Hill today, maybe some of you have, you will find this soaring monument to first flight. If you go to Bridgeport, Connecticut today and you feel like ferreting it out after a little bit of GPSing, you will find this somewhat less soaring <laughs> monument to Gustav Whitehead. Yeah, it took, it took the state of Connecticut another six and a half months after they put this thing up just to appropriate the money to inscribe the marble at the bottom. But you know, I will finish, I will finish by the same, with the same words that I finished the chapter on, on Gustav Whitehead in the book, which is that we've talked tonight about all these august institutions and experts um, from the Smithsonian to aviation researchers and historians who have weighed in on the fact that Gustav Whitehead is not likely to have flown. But I always like to point out there is one tiny spot, one tiny spot, just a few square miles on this earth where for over a hundred years no one has had any question that Gustav Whitehead flew. And it's not because they're local people, not because they, they're native to where he, he lived. They're people who didn't know him. But oral history, oral history has stood up in court. And for three, four generations now, in Bridgeport, Connecticut, they have grown up with a story that has been passed along since contemporary eyewitnesses passed it along that on a hot, humid August day in 1901, a poor German immigrant chasing his lifelong dream rose into the air in a plane he built with his hands and he flew, period. There is, however, one thing that everyone in Connecticut, Bridgeport or otherwise, does agree on today as more history and evidence has emerged, and that is there's a strong feeling that the state of North Carolina should somehow be forced on moral grounds to, to tweak its license plate. <laughs> I don't know. That is wicked piss. Thank you very much. <laughs>